0: The following is a production of Entertainment rigging Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Mm -hmm. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I am your host, as always, Ethan Gilson, and this is episode 25. Today, my guest is Jonathan Duell, who is a... Uh, I think saying your rigor is probably limiting. You are a, uh, a savant of entertainment. You've uh, Jonathan has done a lot of things in the industry, from... Uh, design stage manager, technical supervisor, technical supervisor um, and rigor, and a uh, very well-known uh, rigor in the circus arts, and an uh, all-around good guy. How are you doing today, Jonathan?
1: I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me here.
0: Oh, thanks for being here. So before I ask you the first question, I'll mention to people that uh, Jonathan and I met uh, working on ESTA standards um, quite a few years ago and have uh, had a lot of fun talking about rigging and different things. And um, the reason I'm mentioning that is, again, it's another thing of the technical standards program from ESTA being a great opportunity for people to see what's happening in our industry, what topics we're looking at for, for standards. Um, and you can be an observer for a hundred dollars a year and see all this stuff develop. So that's my little plug for that. Anyway, so who are you, John?
1: So I'm a grandfather. How about that? So I'm an old, I'm an old fart, I'm an official old fart, uh, um, who's been doing uh, various odd jobs in show business for a very long time, kind of since before I was born. Uh, uh, if you're a Gilbert and Sullivan fan, you will know the term a maid of all work, not necessarily piratical, but I've gotten my hands in, uh, in lots of different pies in show business and outside of show business. Uh, my bride says that I just have a very short attention span, which is, which is possible. Uh, most recently and most relevantly to what we're talking about today is I spend a lot of time thinking about working on and teaching uh, on issues of rigging and risk management for uh, flying human beings, uh, whether that's acrobatic or more traditional theatrical flying. And I do uh, a lot of teaching on that subject. Uh, So that's a start. I guess we'll talk about other stuff as we go. Does that help?
0: Yeah, it certainly does. So I'm asking a a slightly loaded question because I kind of know some of the answer, but how did you get started in the entertainment business? And, And realizing that, like I've mentioned before, a lot of the guests I've talked to didn't become riggers because that's what they set out to do initially. They they moved specifically into rigging after starting, like myself, in lighting or some other areas. What was your origin story of of this wonderful industry?
1: I was born in a trunk in the Princess Theater in Pocatello, Idaho. That's not actually true, but but I was sort of born into this... Uh, my grandfather whitey molich started a uh a family business in nineteen forty eight uh and that's a whole different story but really in the in the dirty seam seamy underbelly of show business uh he was a trucker uh and he uh did the very first movement of Broadway shows and related things by truck on the road. Uh, and uh, that company that he started with his partner, Jim Clark, uh, goes on today. It's run by my mom. Uh, and oh. it is excuse me, <laughs> the dinging on the phone and the dog. Uh, yeah. And uh, it is the um, the leading transportation logistics company, for uh theatrical live entertainment and related stuff uh and that goes on and i still have my hand in that pie uh uh but that's where i started that led me uh my first paying jobs uh my first paying job was while i was in high school uh loading trucks for on tour for the metropolitan opera uh uh, and way back then when the Metropolitan Opera used to do summer tours, they would do repertory. They'd go to Wolf Trap in Washington or Philly or Chicago uh, for essentially a week and do seven shows uh, with full sets. Uh, And so there was an enormous amount of, logistics moving around. And uh, I traveled with the show living in a trailer uh, and, uh, and made sure that the act two set was actually out on stage when act two was ready to start, which in most cases meant actually pulling it out of the truck during intermission. Uh, My second paying job uh, was on tour with another musical, uh, theatrical enterprise, a, uh, a band called Jethro Tull, uh, which I toured with for two years, kind of at a, semil- a seminal time for, uh, for live concert production. Uh, at that time, there was very little stuff flown. Uh, they, the PA was all stacked uh and the flying was uh was very limited but I kind of learned a lot and started seeing what was going on in the big great big world in that. Uh and I never left show business, although I did do other things. I I s for some strange reason I went to law school and got a law degree uh and, and passed the bar and that was the end of my legal career. Uh, uh, And I did work in government for a while, working on uh, international development uh, issues uh, and worked for non-governmental organizations. Uh, That sort of had the show business spin to it because I was mostly involved in communications and uh, did a lot of television and radio uh, and movie work related to global issues. Uh, and that took a chunk out of my uh, uh, out of my life as well. And then I came back to theater, started working and teaching uh, uh, in various aspects of of production. Uh, and following uh, kind of a change of life uh, a couple decades ago. I found uh, I found a home in the circus is the best way. I sort of ran away and joined the circus. Uh, and that happened really quite simply uh, because my daughter, who was seven years old at the time, went to a summer camp uh, where they had a circus program. Uh, and she uh, the first time that I saw her up in the air on a trapeze, I became very fascinated by what was holding her up there. Uh, and that fascination's gone on since then
0: and it, it's it's interesting uh, last week's episode with Rick Montgomery from motion Labs he talks about that it was his kids doing theater that kind of exposed him to the culture and he started getting involved as a uh, as a as a father and and that just kind of grew into a career so. Um, it's great to see the uh, the influence of of children on their parents and and being able to do something and and I know from my knowledge of you it it is something that you carry on today that your daughter is a performer and that um you guys do trainings together and you have a facility in New York that you do trapeze and other aero performance training at you want to talk a little about that or do you want to wait and talk about other things you want to try to do it in a chronological order or bounce right, around?
1: i'll follow your lead sarah who is who is now 30 and uh is the source of my grandfatherhood uh is a really accomplished professional art circus artist uh and a good rigor uh and we do a lot of stuff together uh uh and we try and do a lot of uh hopefully creative things together and i'm proud to be able to follow her around
0: um what so so you start researching learning educating yourself on the the circus performance stuff um what were some of the differences that you were discovering between what you had been doing on the, whether it was music or, or theatrical touring application and the circus rigging. Now I will often tell people the difference is not much in terms of there's still risk involved. There are still people involved. The difference might be that, usually like in a theater show or a concert, the people who were involved are standing underneath all of the stuff we're hanging versus hanging on the stuff we're hanging. So what were some of those differences? What, What were some of the things that you were discovering that maybe surprised you or didn't surprise you?
1: So interesting. I mean, as I started to learn specifically about rigging, uh, I quickly came up against uh, lots of cultural different ways of doing things. And when I, I, was, uh, when I was coming up, uh, like many old farts, a lot of the, the safety practices and the risk management practices that are now mainstream were still uh, not culturally fully adopted. Uh, and so I've been involved in the the evolution of those practices in live entertainment generally. Uh, Circus has its own, traditional circus, has its own unique uh, culture, Uh, and uh, it is not necessarily following at all times or in sync with the mainstream live entertainment culture, although there's lots and lots of crossover. And we have to understand that when I talk about circus, uh, circus is a lot of different things. There's no one uh, one cubbyhole you can stick uh, circus into. It does range from uh, a summer camp program to Traditional, what we'll call mud shows or big top shows, family circuses, uh, up to and including the uh, the Cirque du Soleil's of the world, uh, and the um, and the large scale technical productions that we're becoming more and more familiar with. And I've had the opportunity to work kind of in all of those. the thing that doesn't change is the physics uh and so while the appetite for risk or the importance of perceived risk or the uh level of acceptable risk will change and will vary not only from genre to genre but from uh person to person uh uh the um the physics doesn't change So I spent a lot of time really learning about that and really trying to understand uh, what is it that's going on. And I'm not a a big numbers person. uh, And I never took physics in high school. So this was all new to me, uh, this practical applications of how the world works. And it became really, really fascinating. Uh, I had the chance to learn from and apprentice with, lots of really, really smart people, uh, and take a lot of classes. And you could see the differences uh, in style, in application, uh, between various kinds of work. So, for example, uh, I imagine there are a few people who will be listening to this who are arena riggers. Uh, And today's arena rigging, Uh, really is a methodology which was sort of codified by Harry Donovan. I don't say invented by Harry Donovan, but um, really designed to be able to do the same thing, the same way, repeatedly and efficiently uh, and safely uh, over a wide range of different uh, environments and applications. Uh, So it was a very, very... uh, uh, almost codified methodology, not that there aren't differences and not that there isn't all that analysis to do to figure out, but the day-to-day job of building points, hanging, uh, electric chain hoists, uh, uh, becomes a, um, a repeatable function. Uh, not so much in circus, uh, not so much in acrobatic performance or performer flying where you are dealing with very unique situations, unique loads, unique risks all the time. Uh, and so, so it takes a kind of a different take in the brain uh, to, to be able to split those differences.
0: Why, why do you think, unlike the other half of entertainment rigging, where we've started to develop standards through ESTA, why do you think the the performer flying slash circus and, and like I've mentioned before, performer flying, as you said, is kind of a, it's a, a we have to define it. What are we talking about? And typically, when we say performer flying, and this is purely based on our one ANSI standard, we tend to apply that for um, the Peter Pan style flying effect, where we are not relying on the performer's ability to stay attached to the apparatus.
1: Okay, well, let me quarrel with you about that. Sure, uh, yes, because, because uh, this this the ANSI standard, and I hope you'll put the link in. It's E one point four three, which is the performer flying standard that was written in two thousand sixteen or adopted in two thousand sixteen. Was written uh, by a great group of people, all of whom I admire. GREATLY. If you read the scope of that standard, you will see that it specifically applies to any live entertainment rigging. I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, where a human being is the load, regardless of the style of performance. Now, there are exclusions and exceptions to that inclusion. The exception Uh, The exceptions include the one you referenced, which is the standard doesn't cover the connection between a performer and system where that uh, connection is based on the strength or skill of the performer. It still covers the whole rest of the system and the whole rest of the operations, but it doesn't cover the, um, that ultimate connection. Whereas it does cover the ultimate connection where that connection is mechanical, like a har like a harness. So, right. so to be completely clear uh, and I can't speak for that task group that wrote those, but I was, I, as a member of the, uh, the rigging, the Esther rigging working group, I was there uh, as all of part of all of these conversations the intention was to, was and is, to include all entertainment rigging where the load is a human being. Uh, it is absolutely true that the impetus for that program, uh, as I think Joe Champelli might have mentioned, uh, was this little show that had a guy with wearing a Spidey suit and uh, and some of the challenges that he had uh, and that most of the people who were involved in the initial writing were people with a lot of experience and focus and attention on uh, the, um, the that style of pl- flying. Not just Peter Pan, but right. specifically... Highly automated high speed performer flying.
0: Automated performer flying, yeah. And and so the reason why I was trying to create the distinction is when we were developing the standard, the concern, the valid concern was not creating a standard that would fundamentally alter or change how circus performers might be doing some of their work. We didn't want to require a trapeze artists and and you can argue whether or not they should or not but we at that point we did not want to require a trapeze artist from having to wear a specific harness while they performed so the challenge was how do we create a document and i think most of us agree that one of the the the, third rails of performer flying is the selection of hardware and which hardware is appropriately designed for that use and we agree it would great be great to have a standard that applies to all the hardware that you know that the connector from your silk to your building structure and etc etc is all to a certain standard so we know it's not going to fail and that's why this is a great example of why it's such a complicated topic, and maybe that goes to why there aren't other standards. My original question was going to be, do you think it's the lack of a, a I don't want to say formal, but a well-organized circus industry organization that could form that consensus body to create ANSI standards? Is it a lack of desire for that to happen because it we joke all the time hey it's the circus you join the circus and it and the circus evolved from the carnival and there are a lot of secrets that are kept very close to the breast because of the entertainment side of it and you want to keep that mystique alive in that performance so do you think it's that's combination of Maintaining the knowledge and the secrets, and and not exposing the outside world to how the magic is created. versus
1: No, I don't. Not not in my experience. So so again, just to emphasize, the standard E1.43 covers acrobatics, whether it's in a circus or uh, in other live entertainment. Venue, whether it's you know Marvel Universe Live, what have you, Uh, um, it covers that. The the exclusions are very specific uh, and sort and make sense in my opinion, and this is only my opinion. Uh, The exclusion for the what I'll just say is the apparatus, unless it's a harness or a ride on prop, uh, makes sense because. A lot of because of the the engineering requirements that are laid out in the in E1.43 would make it very very challenging to do the kind of one-off uniquely designed uh, apparatus that are typical of circus. Now, if you're Cirque du Soleil or uh, a large production company you may be able to uh, have all of those pieces engineered uh, for a one-off act. Uh, that's not so true in the, the world of smaller traditional circus, where if I'm going to build myself a trapeze, uh, oh. I'm going to have to build X number of them and have them and then destroy uh, them through, for destructive testing purposes. That's, that, that's kind of outside of the scope of what the authors of the uh, standard uh, felt was appropriate. And I actually agree completely with that. Uh, they also excluded, for example, the use of bungee cord in the load path. That doesn't mean you can't lo- use bungee cord in the load path. It means that 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 is not covered by the standard. it's way complicated uh and it has not the manufacturer of bungee cord for example, has not been standardized in a way that allows for quantifiable uh objective standards so i I actually like the the direction uh there is. Within the circus community, a sense that not enough uh, attention was paid to the acrobatic side in the original writing, which makes perfect sense given the history of it. We're in the cycle of revision for that standard. Uh, and there is a task for a task group uh, of um, really smart people plus me, uh, that's led by Eric, your friend Eric Rouse. Uh, and includes some luminaries and, and, uh, uh, and people that I'm really learning from. Uh, and that's I think it's safe to say that one of the things that we're going to be addressing uh, as we work through this revision is balancing out and making clear the applicability of the standard to all forms of human load performance.
0: And, and perfect sound effect there.
1: Um, I for that, I have no to figure no. Don't. Out how to turn that off?
0: Um, I will do. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I can remember the location. We were in uh, Kansas City, uh, talking about the document when um, the particular subject of or example that you brought up was of wrist straps, and and in the point I think we're trying to make here is. We spend a lot of time working on these documents, trying to eliminate unintended consequences. We're not trying to take away from people. We're just, again, I've said it before. We try to write performance-based standards and not prescriptive. We're not telling you must do X, Y, and Z, and you can't do A, B, and C. What we're trying to say is whatever you do must perform to this minimum criteria. Whether that's using, you know, balsa wood or steel, as long as it meets that performance criteria, you're good to go and allow people to develop and create. Um, One of the things we talked about, you know, we're wordsmithing a lot of times and someone will throw out, you know, hey, why don't we use this sentence? And you think about it and you're like, okay, well. And I I forget the origin of it, but the discussion was talking about harnesses. We didn't want to um, force the use of harnesses on certain things. And you brought up the example of wrist straps that there are performers who use that. And and the thought was, you know, if I recall correctly, someone was saying, "Well, what if you know the performer?" Becomes unconscious and can't hold on. And maybe that's how we define this line. And you brought up the good point. And it's like, well, if someone's using a wrist strap, fundamentally they're holding on to it themselves, but it's possible they could be unconscious and their wrist gets stuck in it and they're still there. And that's where we said, okay, well, do we have to talk about surface area of a harness so that we can include what we want to include and exclude what we don't want to include and try? in a world of gray, come up with some black and white roles.
1: Um, So, so uh, there's a lot in there in, in what you said, Um, where it leads me though, is to one of the areas in the current standard that I believe uh, is important and relevant, not just for this conversation, but for kind of all the conversations that we're having, and that is the the central role of risk assessment uh, as a tool for figuring out what we should and shouldn't do. And if you combine the the call for risk assessment as part of our process uh, with the with what you alluded to as a performance-based standard, uh, you find out that. Standards, and certainly I believe it will be true of the new E1.43, um, are not limiting necessarily, but they're actually empowering uh, in terms of being able to accomplish the creative goals uh, in ways that, uh, that m- keep the risk within an acceptable uh, level. And as we said before, what that acceptable level is, is going to be different for each um, in each situation. That's, that is a situational uh, variable. Uh, and so one of the things that the standard does and that I like to do and that I do when I'm teaching about this stuff is to look at the world through that framework of risk assessment, a risk and hazard assessment and risk reduction. As an ongoing process uh and uh um that's I think key to getting where you're talking about getting going rather than sometimes that means oh we have to specify the surface area of uh of a harness, but most of the time it actually doesn't,
0: yeah, hey. It's it's one of those things that we spend a lot of time trying to figure out and in in I say we it's the entire industry. And again, another important thing for our listeners, even if you're not an observer, you're not paying to get the instant information. So when you're an observer of any of the working groups when a draft document goes out to the working group. So Jonathan and I decide we're going to write a standard about um, silks, specifically silks. And we come up with a bunch of language. We write what we think, you know, hey, it can't break at less than 10 pounds of force. It has to be blue. And it has to be this specific silk from this region of China. I'm just making up stuff. Um, When we send that draft to the whatever working group we're in. So let's say the rigging working group that goes out to all of the voting and observing members and they get to review that. And then we decide, hey, you and I, Jonathan and I decide, hey, we'd like to send this to public review. We think it's good enough that, you know, minus a couple of tweaks, we think this could be published. So we're going to send it out to public review. Well, the consensus body, the working group, looks at it and says, "Yeah, we think you're you know we don't like the fact that you said blue. We think that's really limiting or whatever they may feel that we should maybe can give more consideration to. So that's what being an observer, you don't get to vote on that, but you see that communication. You don't have to pay that $100 dollars to be involved though. When that document goes to public review and you can actually set up RSS feeds from the TSP website to get emails that say, hey, this document just went out to public review, you can go and look at that. So a person who works in circus rigging wants... To see more input from their in their part of our industry on a standard, you don't have to be a voting or observing member. You can make comments in public review and say, I think you need to give more consideration to this. Now, here's the thing. You can criticize, you can say something is wrong, but you have to offer a solution. You can't just say, I don't like this. That's, you can say that, but we don't have to address it. So what we're looking for is we I I think you should change the word this to that. And here's why. And then the task group responds to you saying, hey, that's a great idea. We didn't consider it or we think we covered it for this. So the long winded point that I'm making is. Getting input from the people who are going to use these documents, specifically documents that are very specific and very difficult first to write because there's a lot of different opinions about it, getting that input is a very important part of the step. And when we publish a document the first time, it's not perfect. And when we revise a document is where we start to look at, okay, things that we couldn't get to or couldn't work through the first time, this is a chance to get more information, more people involved in it, and get input and make a better document. So that's my very long-winded soapbox discussion of why people should be involved and make public review comments because even with a task group of nine or 10 people, it's still not a large enough knowledge base for such a large topic. And so getting other input is helpful.
1: And Ethan, I think you speak from experience as the leader of a couple of, uh, task groups, both current and past. So, you know, what you're talking about in terms of the input and the process.
0: Absolutely. I, you know, the current, we're, we're going through a revision of 1.39, which is the fall for portable structures standard. And one of my employees, a person who works for me and is a friend of mine, um, had public review comments and he's a, he, his background. He does this entertainment rigging thing because it's fun. He uh, he was an attorney. He was a rocket scientist. He's a very smart guy, very knowledgeable. He had some comments and it it makes it interesting when you're like, OK, we we see your comments. We don't agree with them. But that input's important because, um, again, it, it's such a broad topic. Um, and, you know, I joke that r- rigging is the, the last of the wild frontier of the entertainment business. Performer flying within rigging is even a smaller subgroup of that overall rigging group. So the resources are fairly small in comparison to what is already a small resource of entertainment rigging. So not all of us can be experts on everything.
1: Well, that's sure true for me. It's, uh, uh, I'm even in this what you describe as a small world. Uh, there's always stuff to learn and people to learn from, uh, and people who are are in the in who are doing this work, but may not be part of the conversation. Uh, the same conversation every day and from whom there's an opportunity to learn. So it, it, that's one of the things that is fun about it. I'll agree with your friend and colleague there. Uh, um, it is it is by no means cut and dried. Uh, it is an opportunity from a creative perspective to create magic, to create performance magic, uh, to enable uh, magnificent artists to do what they do, And because this is entertainment and not uh, ending the COVID pandemic uh, to have everybody go home at the end of the day with the same number of body parts arranged in roughly the same uh, configuration as they left. Uh, uh, And while we, while we, you know what, we think of this stuff as important as we should, but part of what, Uh, we need to keep in mind and is that it is entertainment uh, and that really, really, really safety does need to come first. There's no reason for somebody to get hurt or die doing this stuff.
0: Yeah, I had a discussion back in college and, and I'll preface this by saying, yes, it was in a bar and there was adult beverages involved. So, you know, not many people are really good at making arguments in that environment. Um, a friend of mine we were talking about sports as entertainment and the importance of entertainment to us as a person um, or as a species to say. And ultimately, what, what the discussion was about was there are many forms of entertainment. There are people who don't care about professional sports teams. It doesn't entertain them but theater does, or movies do, or video games, or novel, uh, graphic novels, whatever that is. As a species, we need entertainment, but there are so many different options for that entertainment. And because of that, I say entertainment is necessary, but the specific form of entertainment may not be, which goes to enhance what you were saying, which is we don't have to go and watch a person launched out of a cannon over the, you know, over lava and uh, murder hornets and other things. It may be thrilling. It may be entertaining, but it's like, eh, we could probably find some other entertainment that fulfills us and not be so risky at, at someone's, the cost of someone's life.
1: And one of the, thi- one of the, it's an interesting point, One of the evolutions in the circus is, uh, has been, you know, I mean, the circus, uh, is known for daredevils and risk. And that has certainly been traditionally a part of the attraction, uh, uh, for why do you go to the circus? Uh, and, um, there is a cultural shift going on and a recognition that what we're really talking about is the perception of risk. And if we can manage right. the risk to keep it within an appropriate sphere, uh, we're never going to eliminate that risk. Uh, but if we can manage the risk properly uh, so that everybody does go home and the artistry is creating the perception of the risk or morphing that into an appreciation of the craft, skill, and artistry. so. Right. When Nick Walenda walks across uh, Niagara Falls or uh, another site, uh, and we we watch him walk across there, uh, we can be amazed by that, even knowing that he uh, has a safety tether, uh, and so that that he is not actually at risk of plunging into the abyss. There are other risks involved, but what we're watching is the skill uh, and talent that has that he has developed at really over generations uh, to be able to take on uh, challenges like that. Uh, and for some people, that's not enough. For some people, and I remember the social media at the time of one of Nick's last uh, adventures was they were really upset. But how dare he have a safety tether on uh, uh, when he's doing this? It's not real anymore somehow. Uh, and, you know, the, I hope we move beyond that. I hope we're not in the uh, in the Roman uh, gladiator time when what we're actually looking for is to watch somebody get hurt. Or and, and,
0: and that's the difference. What we want is the thrill and exhilaration of the potential of calamity. We actually don't want the calamity. We don't want to see the person fall and die. Um, and if you do, then I think you need to make an appointment with some doctors and, you know, reevaluate some things. Um, but it's that sense of risk, and which is why you brought it up earlier in terms of the material bungee jumping we go bungee jumping or people skydiving yes there's a percentage of risk but i think everyone would agree that if you went to go bungee jumping and the statistics were that 50 percent of the people who did it did not survive that that was an, an unacceptable risk for you i think most people are uncomfortable with the fact that someone said one percent out of a hundred people who bungee jump it's guaranteed one person's going to die i think bungee jumping would not be a very popular thing. <laughs> so it's that, as he said, that perception of risk. And we are creating an illusion. Um, we know that when you go see a Cirque show with a bunch of performers running up and down a giant vertical wall, that they're not really flying and they're not defined gravity magically we we know in our brain somewhere that there's a wire somewhere doing it but we're being entertained we're looking at this illusion in this art that's being created and saying hey that's pretty cool and the dance is cool, the choreography the visual aspect of it not the oh and by the way they're being held up by this eighth inch wire rope that if it breaks they're going to go splat um and for people who are not comfortable working at heights that's a great example of of what are these performers going through which is yo yeah, oh yeah i got the safety line on me so if i fall i'm totally fine but there's always part of your brain when you're working at heights says but what if that wire rope broke what if it wasn't fine and i do fall all the way which is what i want to avoid um yeah and, and it's it's a very interesting discussion, which goes back to the creating of standards to enhance the safety without limiting the art.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's well put. Uh, And that in part comes down to helping to define what is acceptable risk. Uh, And so for a trained acrobat, who is leaving the ground uh, to do their art, they are accepting the risk to the extent that they know, you know, gravity is not just a good idea, it's the law. And everything that we're doing uh, is a way of creating the illusion of getting rid of gravity or a uh, or, or related idea. But we, in doing that, we are taking risks. Now, and we accept those risks. Now, do we accept those risks on behalf of somebody who buys a ticket to see the show from the third row? Uh, The the level of risk that we deem to be acceptable varies from where we stand and where we sit. I was just thinking that
0: the entertainment of a high high tension wire or trapeze artist at the circus, the traditional and big top circus. When they fall, you still scream when the person falls, even though you know they hit the net or the crash pad or whatever they're using and they're okay and they hop up and they're like, look, I'm okay. But the audience still has that emotional ride, which is what you're trying to, to create as a performer and you've succeeded. So the reality is, we're not, I mean, we're very bluntly saying we want you to have that adrenaline rush of the perception of the risk without the catastrophic failure of that risk. You can have both. So if we can have both, let's figure out a way of, you know, doing that the best we can.
1: And actually what you've said is really a nice encapsulation of kind of what where the juice is for me in this game it is it is figuring stuff out it is trying to create the magic uh without using harry potter's wand uh using the tools that we have how do we create that magic uh and how do we do it in a way that uh that is uh acceptable in terms of the risk uh that we're that we're subjecting ourselves and our performers to, uh, but it does come back to what is the what's the uh, the way we used to say it, what's the gag, what is it what is the effect that we are uh, attempting to accomplish uh, and the ingenuity uh, and the creativity of the folks who uh, who create that magic whether you're talking about Jim Shumway at Tate, uh, or somebody in a family run, small circle, the level of ingenuity is, uh, and commitment to the result is the same. Absolutely. So the, the question
0: that popped into my head related to, okay, so how do we do the, the, the gag safely? One of the areas of debate within performer, flighting, f- performer flying is the selection of use of hardware. Not in the apparatuses you said earlier, whether that's the trapeze or the, a silk or a ring or whatever it is, but in the rest of the hardware, for instance, specifically carabiners. And... The challenges associated with the fact that traditional rock climbing, sports climbing hardware is not designed the same way as industrial living, lifting or even uh, carabiners and hardware designed for rope access, rope, I can't articulate, rope access or rescue, high angle rescue stuff. So, one of the questions I normally ask people is, is there a problem? A widget or product that caught your attention recently. Are there products that are coming out now that are kind of bridging that gap of being purpose designed for performer flying or anything that you've found that you like? How do you go through your selection process in a broad stroke of the hardware to maintain that safety side?
1: Right. Okay, great. So I'll I'll uh, start by going back to the standard uh because the standard uh the E1.43 and I will say similar similar uh, approaches are taken in other standards really talk about the the answer to the question what are the characteristics of hardware that are minimally acceptable uh to accomplish the goal so fundamentally we have to start by knowing what our loads are uh, this is true for performer flying acrobatics uh, or arena rigging we have to know how what what those loads are uh, and what the what the um, e 1.43 standard does is it it helps us distinguish that and helps us figure that out because the terms can get confusing and complicated. Uh, And uh, I remember that when I took courses with Jay Glarum years and years ago, he used to use very technical terminology. He used to say, what we really need to know is when will the sucker blow up? Uh, And, so we'll call that we can call that the breaking strength of the of a particular piece of hardware, or it could be not hard, it could be soft, uh, it could be a sling, it could be uh, it could be fiber, it could be wire uh, fiber rope, uh, wire rope, whatever it is. When will the sucker blow up? Uh, um, and obviously we want to be sure that we never approach applying a load that gets close to the point of when will the sucker blow up. So the uh, to me, that's the key piece of information. Uh, and then the question of what is the relationship between when will the sucker blow up and how much load are we actually putting on it and how much load are we allowing ourselves to put on it? That's the key relationship. Now, the term of art for that is, for those who haven't followed it, is called a design factor, sometimes called a safety factor. Uh, although the the nerds among us will quarrel about the exact use of those words. It, in my world and for my purposes, I'm going to use them the same way. Uh, so the ratio between the load that we are going to the the loads and forces that we're going to apply to the hardware or to the system and when that system will blow up the break we'll call that the breaking strength uh, it gets way more complicated when you start talking about elastic and plastic phases and yield points uh, but we'll keep it simplistic for now that's a little that's a little bit of a rabbit hole. I love rabbit holes, but that's a little bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, and the E one point forty three standard gives us three different ways of looking at it. They say, well, first you have to know what your what the weight of the of the let's call it the performer and apparatus. How much is that thing going to weigh? And that's a place to start. Uh, And for reasons that are historical, we're going to assign that with the name working load limit or allowable load. That that is the load, the static weight of what it is that we're hanging or who it is that we're hanging up there. Uh, Then they say, but wait, we have to go beyond that. Because we know that that whenever something moves, it's going to uh, multiply the force that's applied based on that load. Uh, and so the, the term of art that people use for that is they call them dynamic loads. Uh, and if they happen really, really, really fast uh, uh, in show business, we tend to call them shock loads. Uh, really, really, really fast. Uh, but the standard calls them characteristic loads. Uh, and the, st- the characteristic load is defined as the, the weight plus any normally expected, uh, uh, additions to that weight, uh, usually as a result of dynamic, dynamic, uh, movement. Uh, Starting and stopping, accelerating, deaccelerating, are all, uh, and this is a whole other wonderful rabbit hole to talk about, but um, but are going to create a larger number. Uh, so that um, that uh, leads you with the characteristic load. Then, because the uh, standard writers were smart, they said, "But wait." We don't want, we know what the characteristic load is. We know uh, what we normally expect our performer to produce, to generate uh, when they do their act. But what if something goes wrong? What if, uh, let's say we're operating on a high-speed winch and, for example, the power gets cut to the building and the brakes slam on really fast? And we have a load that is not intended uh, and it's not something that we ever want to happen, but we still don't want the system to blow up. We still don't want the sucker to blow up. We still need to support it. Uh, the standards writer call writers called that a peak load. Uh, and that can get a little confusing because in my mind, I would have used, I might have used the term peak load. To talk about the the maximum load that I would expect, but the standard writers are, were thankfully smarter than me, and they looked beyond that to what could possibly go wrong here, uh, and so they had a they have a peak load. Now, so we have a working load limit, we have a characteristic load, and we have a peak load, all of which need to be less than the breaking strength of our hardware or of the weakest link in our system. Uh, And the question then becomes, how much less? Now, the standards writers adopted a formula, uh, and the formula was designed, one, because it was seen to be prudent and based on good engineering and good data, and two, because it fit that sweet spot that you are talking about, where It actually worked and didn't make it impossible to do the job of creating the magic. Uh, And what they said was that your design factor needs to be a factor of 10 based on the ratio between the working load limit, that is to say the static weight, and the ultimate breaking strength or minimum breaking strength. And I know I'm using words imprecisely, but I'm pointing in a direction. Uh, And, not or, but and, it needs to be, the uh, the design factor needs to be at least six times the rate, the breaking strength needs to be at least six times the characteristic load. That is the load that we would normally expect to be produced by the dynamics of the act. And what's more, if something goes really wrong and we create a peak load, the system needs to be at least three times as strong as that maximum anticipated peak load uh, that of something that was some, when something goes wrong. So you have a formula that has three different ways of looking at it, you have to look at all three and see which is controlling. Uh, but it gives you an answer and a very useful answer to how strong does the thing need to be so that we so that none of it's gonna break, so that the weakest link is not going to break. Uh, and again, it all comes back to knowing or having a good target, at what your loads are, what your working load limit is, what your characteristic load, and what your potential peak load is. Long answer to short question.
0: It, we love those here. Um, you know, it's interesting because it, it's, as you're going through terms and, and, and such, I've referred to it before, and actually I created the video uh, based off of... Um, a training that you and Eric and, um, come on brain and work.
1: And Thank you.
0: I, I was just hung up. Um, you guys had a wonderful webinar a few months ago talking about, uh, performer flying and performer effects, um, and using terms. And from that, um, you know, there are times not every time and, but, there are times where you can be uh, general with your terms and there are times where you need to be specific. And that's one of the things where I created a video talking about shock loads and that um, a lot of people tend to use the term for, as you described, a, a dynamic load that takes uh, that occurs over a very small amount of time. Which is what a shock load is, but there, I went in in the video I created into a little more depth about the fact that shock loads are very specific to free fall versus dynamic or peak loads. The reason I'm bringing this up is a to show how complicated the the subject matter is and looking at those different terms, but also to emphasize that. Um, sometimes you need to be specific in those terms so that you can have more accurate information. And so it it goes to a a story that we're going to share about, even though we weren't talking about a performer, we're talking about the same subject, which was an object moving um, and us getting an opportunity to learn about an area that our knowledge base was not, as broad as we thought it was so i'll 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 set it up a few years ago we were out in las vegas at ldi and traditionally esta would hold uh one of their quarterly meetings at ldi now it's nam well now it's online because we can't meet with each other um but traditionally we would do usitt and ldi as two of the four meetings and then we do uh the middle of Texas for the other two. And you and I were sitting next to each other. We go through the rigging working group and you've leaned over to me and said, Hey, you know, I, I have this project that I've been asked to work on to figure something out. Can I pick your brain? And we sat down, do you want to describe what the project was and, and what the challenge was? Yeah,
1: I mean, no, no, nobody will, uh, will know what I'm talking about, but there is this little show where at the end of the first act, this chandelier has a problem and sort of comes down and does nasty things, at least it has the, the, the illusion of doing nasty things. Uh, and there was a production of that show uh, that had acquired a fairly wonderful chandelier. To do this effect, and it had all the bells and whistles in it. I mean, it smoked, it sang, you know, uh, skipped to Maloo, it shook, it did everything. It had some big motors built into it, uh, and it descended uh, in uh, in all its glory down uh, at the end of Act One before the blackout. Uh, and the question came up, and I was asked to to weigh in on this is what's the maximum force that that chandelier could apply to the building uh, so that then the engineers involved uh, could um, make sure that the building would support uh, all of those loads anticipated, normal, and unanticipated, or using the the term of art that we've just introduced, the peak loading. Uh, What's the worst possible thing that could happen uh, uh, in terms of the load that would be applied by that chandelier to the building? Uh, And it became clear that as you pointed out with shock loading, that the highest numerical load was likely to be a, a sudden stop of an object that was moving fairly rapidly. Uh, uh, the su- It's not the long fall that gets you, it's the short stop at the bottom, right? Uh, exactly. So, um, so then it came to us to try and figure out well how short that short stop was going to be uh and without going into the the whole story there was some data that we had and there was some data that we didn't have uh to um in order to analyze this uh for those who are uh automation wizards uh you will know that we're talking about something that is commonly called a category zero stop. Uh, uh, the, the way the brakes are designed on these uh, devices is such that uh, it defaults to closed and you apply power to open the brakes to allow motion. Uh, and if for some reason that power gets cut Uh, In an uncontrolled way, those brakes are going to slam on, and they're going to slam on really, really fast, uh, and that's going to cause uh, the highest peak load or the highest shock load uh, in this case. And figuring out how fast that was, again, required some engineering information uh, and some extrapolation uh, and, uh, and a little bit of math. So that we could answer the question, uh, well, how strong does the building need to be? Uh, I don't know, uh, Ethan. Is there more that you want to say about that? But that—that's kind of the—that the-
0: is—that is, that is the, the 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 broad stroke. One of the things I'll mention is the original, uh, both English and U.S. design of this apparatus had the machinery above the ceiling of the theater this particular tour um they changed that to where the machinery was uh suspended underneath the ceiling
1: well Um, no to be specific the machinery was built into the chandelier right exactly
0: so that's why we were doing this even though it was only a few years ago it was a a new production it was a little different and um one of the things uh, I remember when we were sitting down and you were going through this and you and we started roughly in the same place, which is we have this equation we all use for shock loads. Um, and we knew that it wasn't a pure shock load because it wasn't falling at 32 feet or nine meters per second squared. It was something different. So we knew that was a little different. And some of the original calculations you had done your gut was telling you that the answer wasn't correct. You didn't know how incorrect it may or may not be, but it, it something was, your intuition was telling you, this isn't right. And you had talked with a couple of our friends who are engineers and, and we were kicking things back and forth. So you and I are talking about this. And I've mentioned before, my older brother is a physicist. So I called him and I said, Here's what we're trying to figure out. Now, at this point, for me, it's a, a, a academic process. I like, I want to learn. I want to know what the answer is if this ever comes up in the future.
1: And For me, I, for me, I just didn't want to
0: drop a chandelier on something. Right. Exactly. Um, and that's where, unfortunately, my brother had to educate me again, which is our original calculations, we were using pounds. And people have heard me talk about this. I talk about it in the video I did about shock loads. Pounds is not a measurement of force or mass. It it is the force of gravity on a particular mass versus uh, kilograms, which is a measurement of mass. Kilonewtons is the measurement of force on mass. So what we learned was that we had a conversion issue. What well, we knew that this chandelier weighed in pounds, we were using those pounds to try to figure out what this peak dynamic load would be. And what we actually needed to do was use mass and not pounds. Why is that important? Because we were trying to take pounds and multiply it by acceleration our speed and so basically we were double taxing our mass we were applying that acceleration twice once in the weight in pounds and then in our speed so that's where we learned about slugs so one slug is about 32 pounds and a slug is the us increment of mass but we don't ever use it outside of, you know, actual scientists. And that's where once we converted the pounds to slugs, and then we changed, you know, multiplied by our speed, we started getting answers that we intuitively felt were a lot better. And it's one of those very interesting things where, you know, it took a physicist to be like, Oh, here's your little thing. The one mm-hmm. small little thing. And it, it, the second we learned that both of us, you know, the light bulb went off and we're like, Oh, why didn't we see that earlier?
1: Well, you have a very good memory because I didn't remember any of that stuff. <laughs> there you go but the, the the unit's thing is is important, and I don't want to uh to take us down the path of arguing about you know are kilonewtons friendlier than pounds or slugs or anything like that. but I was th- those of you who have taken any of my rigging courses know I tell this story. Uh, I was actually teaching a course in Boulder, Colorado, uh, and took a walk during lunch, uh, and came to a bridge, uh, and it was an old bridge and it had some history and there was a sign on the bridge dated, I think, I don't remember like 1890 something. Uh, and it said bridge limited to 30 head of cattle, 100 sheep, or, uh, 62 horses. I Don't quote me on the numbers. Uh, and it, I immediately took a picture of it and took it back uh, to the workshop because it really illustrates that, you know, mostly it doesn't matter what units you're using as long as you know what units you're using and you have them agree with the other units that you're using. Right. And that's sort of uh, I'm, I am – I'm unashamedly – not a math nerd. Uh and that's uh that is um one of the lessons that that I think I even remember from high school algebra, but uh but it's certainly important for what we do. Uh, and there are lots of stories even in NASA and aerospace industries where getting the units wrong can cause you a big problem.
0: Absolutely. And 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 the point being Clarity. It's funny. Rocky wrote a um, an article years ago about um, clarity versus confusion where he was talking about uh, rigging math variables and the terms we use for them. So if you've taken rigging training, your instructor, if we're figuring out bridles and you want to know how much force is in each bridle leg, and I stated that very specifically Some people might call that tension. Some might call it leg force. Some may call it something else. It doesn't matter what you call it as long as you're consistent so that when you're communicating with someone else, what you are trying to describe is received appropriately by the person you're communicating with. Um, It's the same thing. We use pounds. There are engineers in different countries that pull their hair out because we do that because they feel it's it's too coarse of a measurement to say it's not specific enough but here's the thing if i'm a rigger and i'm talking with my u.s engineer and i say i need to know how big this i-beam needs to be to support a thousand pounds on a standard chain hoist moving at hundred at 16 feet per minute with a peak dynamic load of 125% of my static load. We can get that answer in pounds. And as long as myself and the engineer are talking the same language, you get an answer, you're fine. The issue is if my engineer starts talking in kilonewtons instead of pounds, and we get confused and information gets kafakled. Um,
1: that's a technical term as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. See, a lot of people know the flugel switch or the Finnegan pin, but Kafakold—that that is a whole nother level. Um, so that's ultimately what the discussion about is it, it, I don't care if you call it red, it weighs 16 reds, as long as you're consistent in that term throughout the problem solving the equations, all that, et cetera, et cetera. But, it is a great story. I, I, I often I'm fond of that because <clears throat> the two things that I learned about one was the slugs, but also thinking outside of that, uh, it's not in free fall that winch was moving down the chandelier at a fixed speed. So that equation that we all have learned and there's the two versions I've mentioned, which is, um, your weight, or your, your load. Um, and then the two versions are either um, one plus free-fall distance divided by stopping distance. You'll see slightly different configurations. You get the same answer. That is purely based on free-fall. It takes that 32 feet per second squared or nine meters per second squared into consideration. But we weren't free-falling at 32 feet per second. We were at some different speeds. So... It it was a very interesting learning process of, okay, how do we do this appropriately? Because it is something we're dealing more with that, whether it's automation or motor assisted line sets, ETC Prodigy or Clancy Powerlift, where you're moving at 180 feet per minute and you're slowing down. And that's one of the interesting things as well. In the control systems, they do a D cell E stop. So if you hit that big red plunger, the brakes are not applying instantaneously. It slows down. It's a very short amount of time, but done to decrease that peak load. What we discovered with this particular project was they had D cell on the E stop, but if the hoist lost power, it was a category zero E stop. And so that was the catastrophic failure hey, the the power goes out in the building at the exact moment the chandelier is moving at its fastest speed. We want to make sure it doesn't go boom.
1: Another technical term.
0: Yes. I'm I'm fond of the splat.
1: Well, splat refers... Yeah, anyway. Yep. We want to even go there.
0: So... ah, Yeah. Yeah, I... I, you know everyone recognizes that i love this stuff and they're like yeah eh, there you go there's ethan in the weeds again
1: yeah and so let me say something about in the weeds if you don't mind not at all the in the weeds is a good thing uh um compulsive detail orientation is a good thing, uh, and an essential component of doing what we do. Uh, and so that real detail orientation, uh, is one of the characteristics of the best riggers I know and the best, uh, and the people that I would really be most happy having my life or my daughter's life, uh, or any of my colleague's life, dependent on. Uh, there's nothing nothing wrong with that. Uh, it it is also, uh, and I know you share this. Uh, it is also extraordinarily important and helpful to keep the big picture. Uh, and I find it's always a dance the balance between the big picture, what are we trying to accomplish? What is the gag? Uh, what are the, the, the major components of our work here? Uh, with the ability to delve down deep uh, into the, the minutiae of this stuff, because the m- minutiae of this stuff is life and death. So, so please don't, uh, don't, um, denigrate the, uh, the nerditude or the getting in the weeds tendency. It matters.
0: I, I think I'm going to have a friend of mine who's an artist come up with a a visual, which is going to be a teeter totter a seesaw. And on one side will be something depicting in the weeds and the other is going to be the words. Over-analysis leads to paralysis. Well, there's the thing saying, saying of a friend of mine. What I'm saying is there's a balance. You know, you can't go too far to either side. Um, and the the thing you learn over time is where to find that balance. When When sometimes you have to be a little closer to one side or the other, but ultimately to get to the result, which is successful execution of the performance.
1: Yeah. With everybody going home. And I will say that the it, it's sort of both and rather than either or for me. Uh, um, yes. Yeah, and yeah. and um, the way I, the way I tend to approach dealing with the weeds is to say, gee, in my world, if I have to get into the weeds, I'm operating too close to the border. Uh, and so I want to be in a situation where I don't have to do math down to three decimal points because, I, because I'm allowing sufficient margin so that I'm not ever close to whatever that boundary condition might be. Uh, and that I am using equipment uh, and practices that keep us well within the sweet spot uh, of what we're doing. Uh, and that is a balance because uh, you could say, well, just make the darn thing stronger, make it stronger. And then you end up with, you know, a an eight ton shackle uh, that is going to have consequences uh, and make the performance not possible because you just got so much hardware floating around. Uh, uh, so that is a balance. But the way the the mindset for me is to find a sweet spot where I'm not close to the boundary condition uh, that I am. And then and so that that third decimal point doesn't really matter to me
0: yep exactly um one of the things i teach people when we talk about rigging math is i'll i'll say round your weights up and never your measurements because your measurements rounding a measurement can have significant effects but i then i i quote harry which was as a rigger as long as i come up with a number that is larger than what i am likely to see in reality we're fine Um, and that's the goal. So, you know, oh, it's 16.3 pounds. I'm okay calling that 17 pounds, not 16, because I don't want to short side it, but yeah, round it up, you know, there, there's, there's time for precision and there's time for adding a little additional design factor to, to make sure that, uh, you're covered.
1: And it also makes life easier. So, I mean, one of the classic cases is when you're looking at uh, the force exerted on a point by uh, when there's a pulley or a change of direction going on in a line. Uh, and we, we call that resultant force. Uh, and uh, if you use the trigonometry, you would know that a 90-degree bend is going to apply uh, a one a multiplier of 1.41 on the uh on the point low on the point that is supporting the pulley uh 1.41 is an odd number it's really okay with me if you make that one and a half uh and not even do the trigonometry or even consult the cheat sheet you got 90 degrees add multiply by one and a half to get what that point load is there. Uh, It makes it easier. You're rounding up uh, and you're not having to, frankly, you're not having to spend your limited attention on things that are not going to be the potential points of failure.
0: It's funny when I took the ETCP exams in 2005, I had all the equations in my head. Hey, now I use little tricks. I'm a very visual learner. So I, I would reverse engineer the equations to figure out how they were developed. And I would look at the components. Okay, this number comes from here and look at that relation. That's how I memorized them. Ten years later, yeah, not in my head. I, you know, started using either, you know, spreadsheets, different things to make it more effective. Efficient. I still you know have it in my brain the visual side of it and can recreate it um but you'll find as you get older you're putting more and more data into your memory and it gets harder and harder to pull it out faster and sometimes some of it leaks out and isn't there anymore so
1: so, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. What are we going to discuss today in this call?
0: Exactly. We're talking about cars.
1: Wow. Okay.
0: Um, and, and it's funny. We that there are terms that we used to use for describing these things that are changing over time because of their origin. So now I refer to things as uh commonly accepted rigging practices. So, Instead of 1.41, 1.5. That's, that's an easy one. Um, I don't remember what the cosine and tangent of 1.5 degrees is, which is the maximum amount of fleet angle you're allowed on a shiv. But I remember pi, 3.14, and I know a oversimplified thing or something that I can easily remember is that if you take your... your distance in feet. So I have a two shifts and they're 10 feet apart. My allowable offset is the distance in feet times, well, it's not pi, but it's 0.314. So I remember pi, I remember 314, I just need to move the decimal over. And that gives me my offset in inches. So never again do I have to sit there and say, "What's the? it's one and a half degrees and what's the sign and I got to remember trig to figure this out. Nope, got a little trick that I can do. It's easier to remember. It's more useful for me as a practical rigger to be able to use that knowledge and to work efficiently. And, and that's, that's what a lot of the education is, learning those little tricks from each other of how to make it efficient. And yet, still safe.
1: Yeah, efficiency and safety are not necessarily in opposition to each other.
0: Correct. Ah, this has been awesome. I just...
1: Fun, fun times. Ethan. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: See, I mean, you and I are just a perfect advertisement for why people should attend uh, standards writing discussions. Oh,
1: I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Um, I will will say that you know I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts uh, and really enjoyed them, and really listening to the people a lot of, because this is a small world. A lot of the people are people that I know and respect a lot. Uh, among them, not to single anybody out, uh, is Mister Eric Rouse, uh, who I give a lot of credit to in terms of helping me to be a better teacher uh uh and i will mention that uh that if you're interested in diving into more acrobatic rigging specific stuff uh eric and i are working on a plan for a new course uh on his uh um platform uh and with his organization and so stay tuned for that or get in touch with me if you're interested or with Eric uh, and we'll figure that one out. It's not, not in concrete yet, but, uh, but uh, we're looking forward to doing more of that, figuring out how to communicate uh, about this stuff with folks uh, in, in ways that are more, more efficient and more effective and more fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm going to ask you, Two questions. Okay. Two more questions. You kind of just alluded it to it, but here's a question that I haven't asked. Uh, I didn't ask last week. Who have some of your mentors in rigging been?
1: Oh, you. Um. Uh. The, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful community uh, that we are a part of. Uh, and, uh, and I really enjoy and learn from, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of people. Uh, and I wasn't being facetious Ethan, because I follow your stuff. Uh, and I learn from it. Uh, the, the going back to the beginning of my rigging world, uh, uh, Harry Donovan and Jay Glarum were early and important teachers for me, as well as for many others. Uh, Our esteemed Uncle Bill has been a part of that. Uh, Eric uh, uh, is very much a part of that. Uh, I've learned a lot from a lot of people uh, in the circus world, some of whom uh, wouldn't know an equation if it walked up and hit them. Uh there's some of the the smartest and I will say safest practical riggers in the world and problem solvers. Uh uh among them Brent Van Rensburg of Zip Zap in South Africa. Uh and I could list others, but um but we'll use that as a placeholder. Uh all of those folks have been teachers and mentors and uh and um Exemplars for me as I've learned and as I continue to learn.
0: I think that's a, a critical thing that we always continue to learn. We we I say it over and over and over again that I'll get out of this business when I don't want to learn anything else. Um not that I can't, not that I'll know anything, but when my desire to stop learning has ended, that's when I'll retire. Um, excellent. Well, you had one more question. I do have one more question, which is, do you have a good and or bad ringing joke or humorous story that you would like to share?
1: Well, I have lots. Anybody who's listened to me at, at one of my workshops knows that I have lots of stories. Uh, and when I teach, you know, sometimes I'm teaching performers. Sometimes I'm teaching riggers. Um, I was telling one of those stories at a recent at a recent workshop, uh, and I think I said something uh, that was seen as, shall we say, disparaging. Uh, to uh, to an old time rigor, uh, you know the you know the type that I'm talking about. Uh, he generally has a black T-shirt on that says "Rigor" in big, big, big letters. Uh, so I said something casually that might not have been uh, the most diplomatic. Uh, and then I, you know, I put my, really put my foot in it because, because I said this, this to him and he said, wait a minute, I'm a rigger. And I said, well, that's okay. I'll speak slowly. (laughs) Well, it wasn't the right answer.
0: (laughs) Uh, it's kind of like we said the guest last week that, uh, there's only one rigging joke and all the other are true stories.
1: Okay, I'll
0: buy that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jonathan, uh, thank you for spending some of your time talking about uh, yourself and some interesting topics. Um, I will mention to people that, and I'll throw in the show links. Uh, a couple of things: one, uh, Listo Flying Trapeze, which is the uh, the training, the the circus. Uh, the trapeze school. Hey, you know, I could use the word in the name, uh, that you and your daughter run in New York. Um, as well as some of the other things that as the standards, um, that we talked about, I'll throw those in the show notes and get that in there. Um, certainly do keep an eye out for, uh, some of the online training that Jonathan and Eric Rouse are going to do, uh, which is tailored to the aerial performance side of our business. And again, I I appreciate the time. I always love talking with you. I have have a great time. And I certainly think our listeners uh, will enjoy it as well.
1: Well, I can't promise that, but thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. And of course, to the listeners, thank you for bearing with us through this weedy, weedy episode. But I still think it was awesome. I appreciate you listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle.
1: Son, you know your father
0: was a rigger. A rigger was he. Mm-hmm. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger. As big as can be.